0: To the Freedom Pact. Today on the Freedom Pact podcast, I am joined by Dave Hollis. Dave is the CEO of the Hollis Company, a company that exists to help people build better lives. Dave was previously president of distribution for the Walt Disney Studios until he left to apply his experiences to the expansion of the Hollis Company, Dave is also the author of the book, Get Out of Your Own Way. And in today's episode, Dave is attempting to help us see our own journeys with more clarity as he unpacks the lies that he once believed that held him back, such as, I have to have it all together, and failure means you're weak, and gives us the tools that helped him change his life, and that he hopes will help us change ours so let's dive right into the episode today with Dave Hollis Dave welcome to the Freedom Pack podcast i really appreciate your time today i know it's a very important day for you being the start of baseball season so i am thankful you've gave us give us some time today
1: oh it's my
0: pleasure to be here lewis thanks for having me so I think a really good place to start with this podcast. Um, I was looking through your book, and in chapter ten, you say that you've now really got a good detailed um, idea of your personal brand. So, in that vein, could you give our audience a elevator pitch on who is Dave Hollis?
1: I can. Uh, so first and foremost, I'm the father to four kids. I am an entrepreneur, an author, speaker, podcast host, and am on this planet to try and create tools and resources that if people were to use them, might afford them an opportunity to unlock their purpose and calling in life, take a step forward in growth and challenge some of the convention that maybe has kept them stuck for the opportunity to become something bigger. Uh, I've been myself on a journey over the last handful of years to really connect with this idea of why I'm here and the conceit that there was a very deliberate intention in my design by a creator, higher power, greater than myself. And every single day trying to do something that might honor the intention of that creator is the work that I'm doing every day on my side And I hope that with the tools that I create, I might afford people the opportunity to honor the intention of that deliberate, unique design that they, that you were put on this planet for.
0: I was, as I mentioned, I was, I was browsing your book and um, in the spirit of that, how may somebody, what are the main warning signs that somebody may be getting in their own way? How can they recognize
1: that? What are the things to look out for? Yeah. Well, the book is itself a story of 20 lies that I believed that in having believed them kept me in my own way. And in personal development parlance, you might call that a limiting belief. Uh, I just had a conversation with a good friend who's got a new book coming out called Soundtracks. You can call them a soundtrack. Uh, But there are stories, there are dogmas, there are uh, things that we usually from a very, very young age have been programmed to believe by our family of origin, by society, by the worry of what other people think, that in believing those stories have us thinking that we're only capable of doing certain things, that uh, we can only show up in a certain way or that we have to be or act in a certain way in order to get the things that we desire most in life, love, connection, acceptance, And the work that you hopefully can do, whether it's in this book or any book, is to really question the source of the stories that you believe, the the source of why you gave credibility in the first place to this thing that governs how you show up for your life so that if it's not serving you, you might uh, uncouple it from a thing that ends up governing how you'd operate going forward so that you can fully step into who you were meant to be. And so the book and the work that I'm doing in real time, it's trying to trace back where those stories come from. So if you find yourself stuck, ask yourself, what are you believing currently that's keeping you stuck? What's keeping you inside of something that's comfortable or familiar? Often as humans, we tend to choose to stay inside of suffering that we know because of its familiarity, because it's just the way things have always been. And we come to assume it's some on some level, that it's just the way that things will always be. And the only way that we can undo that kind of thinking is to understand what it is that we believe in the first place and why it is we believe those stories, that programming, the constructs or dogma that have kept us feeling stuck.
0: What I love about you know, your work and, and your mission is you're, you're really open about fulfillment and your own personal journey with it. It makes it so much uh, easier to buy into. And there was a quote right at the start of the book I've got to be here. You said the low point of my professional career was when I had the highest-paying job and the most significant title I'd ever had. Um, honestly, at the time, you were you were referring to your to your role in Disney, obviously a, a juggernaut in that space. Some may have looked at you and thought, you know, you'd you'd hit the top, you'd you'd hit the roof. Um, you know, you you are the, the sort of the metric of success to a lot of people. But can you just explain to people? maybe your idea of fulfillment going into that job and where it actually left you in terms of fulfillment?
1: Yeah. What's interesting is I think we've been given a set of conditions that were we to satisfy them, then we will feel fulfilled, that we'll feel like we are good or enough, that we are worthy of love, that we are all the things that we desire in life. And when I was, I'm 46 now, so so 20 years ago at 26, I truly believed that if I could get to a certain level inside of the Walt Disney Company, if I made a certain amount of money, if I had a certain amount of access, then I would feel a sense of fulfillment, that I would be lovable and enough in every other thing. And as I pursued my career and made my way up the ranks, as much as many times I found myself inside of situations that absolutely pushed me to grow because I was not yet qualified for the role that I was being placed into, Mm. at the end of my time at the company, because of the conditions of the company, the strength of the intellectual property, Lucas, Marvel, Pixar, Disney, the strength of... The leadership, just the best leaders in the world and the strength of my teams. As the president of distribution, I had teams in 75 countries, a thousand plus people of uh, some kind as reports, and they were just the most qualified, most incredible people in the entire world, which meant for me to get straight A grades on tests, I no longer had to study. Mm -hmm. And so I, at this 40-year mark in my life, was asking some bigger existential questions around what the heck I'm doing on this planet. Why have I been afforded these gifts? And why in having been afforded those gifts do I find myself now in an extraordinary job? I don't want to for one second, especially in this climate, downplay how grateful I was to be employed. But I was asking if there was a possibility for me to be fulfilled Taking that time in that job that from the outside looked like everyone's dream job, but for me, was not actually pushing me into a place of discomfort that wasn't because of the friction that might normally show up in being a little beyond my depth forced me to grow. And what I came to find was that there is this tie, an unbelievably strong tie, one of the strongest in the world, between growth and fulfillment in that if you are not in a position to grow, if you're not in a position to fail, if you're not in a position that makes you uncomfortable, then you cannot be fulfilled. They cannot coexist. And so I had to start asking some bigger questions about how I might put myself in a place where I could fail. Not because I like to fail, but because I know in that environment, when I do fail, I'll learn from it and I'll grow. How I could put myself into a situation where I was uncomfortable, not because I like discomfort but because I understand the connection between discomfort and the way that discomfort breaks down muscle to build it up bigger. Mm. And and so I I started asking these questions and, and what I also really came back and connected to was that the 26 year old version of myself in my vision casting of what I thought might create fulfillment in my life and career Much of it was very much focused on me, on how I would be able to create abundance for myself or status for myself or significance for myself. And what I came to appreciate was that having any of those things without also having impact for others was empty. It was meaningless. And so I started asking questions of, hey, are there ways for me to use my skills, the tools I've been afforded that might actually make me uncomfortable and force me to grow but that also in playing to some of my strengths, playing to some of my passions may afford an opportunity for me to impact other people. And it's truly been in that convergence between being uncomfortable, being in a position and posture of growth and doing something that I have passion for that can affect and afford light to other people where real, true, deep and meaningful fulfillment can come to to pass. I
0: wonder then um, if we look at it from every angle, so maybe yourself as an entrepreneur, um, you know, a lot of people would would tie success with money. For myself as as a podcaster, people could tie success with views or listens, Um, a salesman, you know, success is being the top salesman in the company. But what metrics do you think that we should all use uh, to define what success means in our work?
1: Well, the the main question that I've asked as I'm measuring my personal success is how do I feel about myself when I'm by myself? How do I feel about myself when I'm by myself? Now, I I started in uh, the beginning of 2020 with this bold declaration that I was gonna have my best year ever. I did not know the circumstances through which my best year may in fact show up, but in attempting to engineer this very best year, I started by reverse engineering all the times when I did not feel the best about myself when I was by myself in an attempt to understand if there were any variables present that in seeing them consistently there, I might be able to, as I saw something presenting itself on the horizon, preempt it from happening so that I might actually engineer this feeling great about myself when I'm by myself thing. And when I look back five years in the, in the rear view, the thing that I saw that was consistent every time I was in my way, every time my confidence was compromised or I felt shame, it was when there was dissonance in my life. When the person I'd suggested that I wanted to be, the person that I believe God created me to be, the person that my family deserves me to be, and how I knew myself to show up on that given day during that given season was different than what I'd represented, than who I know I can and ought to be every single day. When I can create integrity between who I suggest I wanna be, the things I'd have to do on this day today, the only day that I can control to get a step closer to who I'd hope to be in the future, that is when I feel great about myself when I'm by myself. And that ends up being my definition of success. Because success for me is every day getting one step better, just a little bit better than yesterday, right? I'm not competing against you, Lewis. I'm not competing against anyone else. I'm competing against who I was yesterday. And as long as I'm making progress, as long as there's growth, as long as I can create that integrity between who I'd hope to become and how I show up today, I feel good about myself. When I have that dissonance, that space that exists between who I could have been, who I know I could have been but didn't show up as, that's where compromised confidence, that's where shame, that's where regret, that's where motivation, uh, being compromised all live. And so the more that I can create that integrity by developing a routine, by having a set of goals, by surrounding myself with the right people, by putting the things that I am good at and the passion that I have to work in a world that actually affords other people impact, that's when I can create the integrity that makes me feel good about myself when I'm by myself. And that ends up being my definition of success. Perfect. I love
0: that. Um, there's an old self-help cliche that I, I just love. And it's that there's no such thing as a, as a stupid question. And for yourself, we, we obviously mentioned um, you know, your, your, your time working at Disney with all the incredible people there. And you know through your, your entrepreneur and your podcast, and you've probably been around a lot of successful and and valuable people. What can you speak to on the power of asking questions? And how often do you think that we miss out from learning something really valuable for the sake of pride?
1: It's interesting. We're having this conversation on April Fool's Day. And I saw uh, an April Fool's-ish quote this morning that I think captures it perfectly. Uh, The person who asks a question feels like a fool for a minute. The person who doesn't ask the question is a fool for a lifetime. Yeah, And so the idea that you might expose yourself or become vulnerable to not having all the answers may in fact be a short-term trigger that reveals to anyone that you're around, that you are still in data acquisition mode, that you are still in an attempt to learn, going to ask about things that you do not yet understand. And as much as you may feel a pang of being revealed as not having yet altogether. The idea that you would ask the question is the only way that you're ever going to actually acquire the knowledge to become the version of who you'd hope to be as a leader, as a parent, as a partner, as whatever it might end up being. I was the very fortunate beneficiary many times in my 17 years at the Walt Disney Company, walking into a room where I'd been placed now in charge of a task that I was not as qualified for as many of the people on my team. And in that moment, I had a choice. Was I going to represent that I knew all the answers to people that very clearly understood my history and would have seen right through the very thin veil of me acting like I had the expertise or experience that they did, or might I build a little bit of trust by acknowledging upfront that, hey, I am here to do my best to create every opportunity for us to achieve and exceed our goals. And the only way that's gonna happen is if I am afforded the opportunity to ask a lot of questions so that I can, from your expertise, understand the inner workings and intricacies of this business in a better way. And in doing that every single time, it recognized and respected, it saw the value of the people who were sitting in and around the table of my leadership team for what they were, experienced leaders and made them appreciate that I was interested in having them help me understand the business and not gonna pretend like I actually had it all together or had it figured out. And what was great in doing that, one, I inoculated myself from some of my own imposter syndrome by just acknowledging up front, hey, this is who I am. But also the perspective that I brought as someone who didn't actually understand the business as well, that maybe wasn't as entrenched in it or didn't understand how things had always been done, when I did ask a question, I may in fact have a follow-up that provoked a new way of thinking just for the sake of the objectivity of my not understanding. And so it ended up being a real strength asking questions to a group of people that were very, very good but that had been doing things inside of an environment for a long time the same way. And so if you, as a listener, are in a new industry, you've been put in a new job, you want to try and figure out how to get from where you are to where you want to go, get over worrying about what it might look like for you to ask questions and arm yourself with the information to actually make you a better leader. Build the kind of authenticity and trust that comes in owning where you're at in your journey and play a little bit to the ego of the person who has more experience by representing that you cannot be successful in your job without their experience being something that comes in the form of answers to your sometimes silly questions. There were plenty of times where I even represented, look, not only am I gonna ask a lot of questions, there are gonna be times when you're gonna have to stifle laughing at my questions because of how silly and stupid they may feel to you. And I'm fine with it because we have the same goal. We all wanna get bonuses Let's go.
0: I think it's it's really good. There seems to be quite a lot of power and support behind this sort of vulnerability movement that, you know, you see the, the works of, of Brene Brown and, you know, it is really becoming more popular. And it's something that I've, you know, I, I've tried really hard on in the last two years that I've seen direct results from. Do you think, well, from your own personal experience then, that vulnerability can,
1: can almost be like a superpower? Absolutely. I, I mean, I definitely had to do a lot of work to turn it from what initially was me believing it to be a liability, me being revealed as not being qualified necessarily for the job or uh, whatever it might be in whatever situation. And uh, it's only after having tested the hypothesis that vulnerability can be a superpower and having it affirmed that I've come back to the well again and again because of how effective it's been. One of the things I write in the book, I, I I use eight mile, a reference that nobody uses in a book to illustrate vulnerability. But um, there is this sequence at the end of this story of underground rap battle where Eminem is on stage and he is in the finals against someone who uh, is gonna try and tear him apart, gonna try and use all of what he knows of his weaknesses to win this battle. And as the coin is flipped and Eminem goes first, he goes and reveals all of his own vulnerabilities in a way that completely inoculate him from any of the barbs that may come from his competitor in a way that at the end of this film, spoiler alert, leaves him unable to actually rat battle against him. There's nothing left for him to say. And I can say as someone who was the head of sales for a long period of time, there were plenty of times where I walked into a room with people who had a lot more experience, walked into a room with filmmakers who've been making movies for as long as I was alive and acknowledging upfront that, hey, I know I may not have some of what my predecessor does in experience and taking that off the table by introducing the analytics team that I brought in to help offset some of that experience or, hey, I know we're gonna negotiate a change in the way this film costs. And that's going to be tough for you, but let me explain why we appreciate the way that it might affect you and how we're making some things on this end work to accommodate some of the pain that you might feel. By acknowledging up front some of the things that you're, whether they're adversarial conversations in a negotiation or the ways that you might have to afford delivery of value to a stakeholder inside of a big corporate environment, leading with what they might take issue with or acknowledging where some of your weakness may exist builds credibility. It builds a trust that allows you, after you've pivoted from that initial conversation, into anything that ultimately ends up delivering much deeper and greater value. I wonder what your relationship
0: is like with things like failure, with things like shame and how do you manage to, and I know it's not as, as simple as it seems in, in, in every scenario, but generally, how do you try and turn that pain into, into power?
1: Well, two different things in failure and shame. I'll, I'll, I'll hit on both. Failure, you know, definitely a thing that nobody likes, right? No one here, no one listening is uh, raising their hand saying, you know, I'd love to fail. Um, but the fear of failure is primarily one of ego and it's not so much that you're worried about not getting it right you're worried about how other people will think about you for not having gotten it right so there's a couple things in that number 1 anyone who's judging you for having tried something and failed probably has not themselves done the thing that you are doing right so uh, spectators they can cheer they can boo But if they're not in the arena, they do not get to play the game. They don't get to dictate how the game ought to even be played. And so you can be free from the worry of what they might think because unless they're in the trenches with you, they don't actually have an opinion that gets any weight or necessarily deserves any weight. And the second thing is, if you can appreciate that the career you wanna build, the person you wanna become, the company you'd like to grow, that it is impossible to go from where you are to where you'd like to be without failure. Failure is a necessary ingredient. And if you can normalize failure as being a, a mandatory thing that every single company, every single person, every single brand that you admire has had as a part of their story, then it maybe changes the way that you appreciate it as a necessary mandatory ingredient instead of something to avoid. Failure at its most basic level is the best and clearest form of intel on the planet. It is information. And if you can see it as this richest source of information in the world, then the idea that you might walk toward it and invite it for the ability that it might tell you how to do something better, to show you where you need to do more work, to give you a little insight into where some of your own liability personally or as a company or as a product may exist with market fit with the dynamics of the broader echo sphere like whatever it might be if you do not put yourself in a position to fail you'll never learn anything that helps your business your product or you as a person grow so that's failure failure is a requirement you got to change your relationship with it if you can see it as information and the necessary thing that's required for you to get from where you are to where you want to go it'll change the way you approach it welcome it and become comfortable uh, in it being just a thing that has to happen. Shame is a completely different thing. And number one, I just wanna normalize, like if you are someone who is listening to this and you experience shame, you're completely normal. And if you are uh, someone who's listening to this and saying that you don't experience shame, then you're a liar, right? <laughs> one, of the, one of the just parts of being inside of this uh, thing called humanity is that we experience shame. And one of the things that shame has to have in order to exist is darkness. It needs uh, to live inside of a vacuum. And so for me, my experience with shame is something that, especially in these last three years as I moved out of a corporate environment and into this world of personal development, I have, as evidenced in the book and the podcast and the work that I do in social media, I have become a pretty open book with the things that I have struggled with, right? Struggle does not make me weak, bad, not enough. It makes me human, just like you, just like anyone who's listening. And my shame is something that has power and control over me so long as I allow it to fester in the dark. So when I start to feel shame about something, the first thing I try to do is talk about it. And it's uncomfortable because you have shame for it, and yet, When you are willing to bring your shame into the light, number one, you starve it from the thing it needs most, which is darkness. And two, you find empathy because of how universal struggle ends up being as a part of the human experience. You find that there are plenty of people that also have the same kind of feelings that you do around this thing that you are processing shame for. And when you find that you are now less alone in experiencing and processing this shame, you also, in that connection, give yourself an ability to, from someone else who sees a little of themselves in their story or your story or their story and yours, they maybe have found a tip, a trick, a hack that has helped them as they're a little further along the journey, make some progress that now you can be the beneficiary of their learning, their knowledge to address whatever it is that's provoking the shame in the first place. So if you're processing shame, you're super normal, the fastest and best way to deal with it, bring it into light, find a way to connect with someone who through empathy will make you feel normal. And in that connection, potentially grab a tool or a tip that's gonna help you avoid the, the spiral of staying inside of that shame, staying shackled by it.
0: Mm. One of the things you mentioned, they were people's opinions and whose opinions should we look to value the most? And in your life, the people whose opinions matter to you, what qualities do those people possess that make that make you value their opinions?
1: Well, I've broken it down in my next book <laughs> um, in, in something I call eighty five ten five. Okay. okay, So if you were to make a list of every single person that you currently afford weight to, I will argue that you can be free from 95% of the worry of their opinion if you were able to go through this very simple exercise. Okay. I believe that 85% of the people that you worry about are simply not thinking about you. Right? Like it is part of the human condition that we are all thinking about ourselves. It doesn't make you, Lewis, a bad person. It doesn't make me a bad person. We are all inherently thinking about ourselves first. Mm -hmm. And so if we're thinking about ourselves first, likely the people that we're worried about thinking about us are also thinking first of themselves. And that is not then a warranted place to place our worry. But if those 85% of people were worrying about you or thinking about you, they are usually people who are around our life, but not in our life. right? That, so there's a certain threshold inside of which someone actually gets a pass to have an opinion that you may have to consider whether it's something you should listen to, take action on, wrestle with. And most people, 85%, I'm going to argue, either aren't thinking about you or have opinions that because they're around your life, your friends on social media, you might go to a small group or uh, you might go to a sporting event. Like they're around your life but not in your life. The next 10% are people that I would say you love or crave love from. So these are important people, right? You are there you they are in your life, they are important to you, their opinion matters to you. And when we go back to that question of Where did the stories that you believe, where did your beliefs come from? They are often the people who have authored our beliefs. And so the question you have to ask of this next 10% is if they are a credible person in your life who you love or crave love from, do they have credibility on this specific topic? And does their credibility have relevance specifically in your life? Mm right? So I will give an example here. I talk in the book about having not been someone who thought he could be a runner. For 36 years, I didn't run. And I didn't run because I had a story told to me by someone I loved and craved love from who told me that tall people can't run. I'm six foot four inches tall. I was told I couldn't run. I believed it to be a story that was true for me, never tested that hypothesis myself until one day I ran. And though I was told that tall people can't run because of their back, their hips, their knees, I ran. And my back, my hips, my knees, they did not hurt. And I ran more. And now I've become a runner, right? I'm a marathoner. I'm training for an Ironman. I ran 2000 miles last year. I am a runner. And so for that person who told me the story, do they have credibility in my life? They sure do. Someone I'm very, very close to, I love very much and crave love from very much. But their story was one that they wrapped in love, but was actually a reflection of their fear. And so while they were attempting to love me, they were projecting their fear on me. And as someone who was neither tall nor a runner, they did not have credibility specifically on the thing in my life. I can be free. I think that the 10% of people that you love or crave love from, they, man, represent that they love you and because of their love, are entitled to an opinion on something in your life. But if they don't have credibility, you can be free. So it just leaves the 5% then. These are the people that you love or crave love from, who understand your motivation, are aligned in your values, have context for the life that you are living in real time and are attempting to be someone who can be an accountability partner, who can challenge your thinking in a way that says, I will love you regardless of your decision but I'm interested in provoking a conversation to see if you're looking at this from all angles, a little devil's advocacy every once in a while. Those are people you should spend time with. Doesn't mean you have to listen to them necessarily, but you know they have credibility in your life. You know they have an appreciation and aligned values with the things that matter most for you. And now because of that conversation, you can make a decision that is informed, somewhat challenged, and in that feel like, okay, good, I've I've seen everything from all angles. I can move forward. I
0: love that. It's a fantastic model. Um, it's very, really original approach to a very sought-after question. So I look forward to, to jumping into that more when, when the book comes out. I'm really excited about that. Um, on the subject of you know, your circle, how important is it to surround yourself with a diverse community of people? And, and how can that affect the individual?
1: Well, your circle is important for a host of reasons. I mean, the the, the diverse question is important because in uh, in the book, I give the example of just in a in a business setting, hmm. if you are trying to problem solve with people who are all similar in how they've previously solved problems, the alternative ways of solving problems will never uh, appear because no one in that circle has ever had an experience of trying to solve something in a different way. So having diversity and how other people have either different functional expertise, ways of thinking, even there's a a, a great story of a a phone that came out where when you tilted it to the side, it worked if you were right-handed and didn't work if you were left-handed. Why might that be? Well, there were no left-handed people on the design team. They never ever once thought to turn it the way that a left-handed person might turn it. So just having people that have a diverse background and a different kind of thinking will inevitably give you higher odds at solving problems when problems present. Uh, Beyond that, just having uh, other people and their experiences with empathy being as important as it is to understand the experiences of other people so that if from a business perspective, you're trying to create fit with your product in the market, Understanding the differences in the way that people consume and the things that they do, they like the, the you know they're, they're the nuances of anything. Um, if you have people that are a reflection of your audience sitting around the table, you're just again increasing the the, uh, the odds that you're going to create something that will be considerate of the tastes and needs of the intended end customer. But when I think of of, of circle, I think as much in. Personal development parlance of like you are who you surround yourself with. Right. So if you, Lewis, are the most ambitious person in your circle, you need a new circle because you will never become more ambitious if you are not constantly surrounding yourself with people who are driven. If you're the most faith-filled, if you know religion is important to you, you need if if you're the most whatever it might be you need to make sure that you have people around you who are a little further along their journey, who have a little depth of experience or time spent in something that you have personal value for so that you are always being held to the aspiration of what else might be possible in your life. If, uh, if you've ever heard of the, uh, the analogy of, of crabs in a bucket, if you had a bunch of crabs in a bucket, uh, a crab will inevitably... Start to get to the top of the bucket. Hmm. You know what happens when a crab gets to the top of a bucket in a crab's in a bucket? All the other crabs pull that crab back down, hmm. right? If you are in a circle of people who are not motivated and you one day get some motivation, you've got a great idea, you've tapped into something that's your passion, you're driven to go chase after it, and it challenges the circle of people around you because of their lack of motivation they will, on a conscious or unconscious level, talk you out of it. They will, like the crab, pull you back down to mediocre because that's just the way humanity works. But if you can be around people who are reaching for the fuller, deeper, purpose-filled, impact-driven life that you aspire for, you will continue to reach for it because in some ways of the model and the aspiration that they as a circle create. Now when I think of circle two, just to finish the point, I actually also think of circle in what we consume at large, right? Like a lot of people think of circle as physical human being people, but also with the proliferation of social media, what are you consuming regularly with social media? If you have positive influences, the chances that you're gonna have a positive outlook on the world, way higher. If you have negative pessimistic influences, you're not gonna have as much hope. There's a great line from one of my favorite old school personal development people, Les Brown, Mm -hmm. hope in the future is power in the present. And if you are around people who are not hopeful for the future, you restrict the amount of power you can tap into in the present. So whether it's what you consume on social or how much news you're consuming or the way that you're immersing yourself in screen time instead of book reading, all of those things also end up contributing to what I believe is the circle that determines how optimistic how much you believe in the possibility of a bright, beautiful future versus something that's less than mm.
0: a, a phrase you see that's becoming more and more popularized lately is self-care. Um, self-care obviously looks different to everyone some you know you might see on Instagram someone may upload a picture of their, of their, their, their bath with candles around it and call it self-care. Others may, you know, cook themselves a meal and call it self-care. I spoke to a guest last week and, and she suggested that self-care goes a bit deeper and it starts with health. But I wonder for you, for, for Dave Hollis, what does self-care look like to you?
1: Yeah, so I have uh, very much a feeling on health as my answer to the self-care question. Uh, The question that I have been asking, and I revisit it on an almost every six-month basis, is this question, what do I need in this season against each of five dimensions of health? What do I need for my physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, and relational health? And if I can come up with three things that really tend to my specific needs in this season for the next six months to get that step every day closer to who I'm hoping to become, well, then I give myself the fighting chance to get there. So if it's about physical health, it's all about my nutrition and body movement. It's about pushing myself to set aggressive goals like my Ironman training to remind myself of how strong I can be. If it's my spiritual health, it's about finding and creating time in peace and silence, connecting with other people who share some of my beliefs, and also finding people who don't share my beliefs, to just ask questions about why I believe what I believe, challenge my faith so that I can strengthen my faith. When it comes to emotions, it's really for me in the last year been this search for understanding why I'm feeling what I'm feeling. And so when it comes to self-care, that has shown up in books and podcasts that have really been more about understanding and making space for my thoughts, understanding and making space for my feelings, that I am not anxious when I feel anxiety, but that I am the witness as self of anxiety having presented itself But the work that it takes to actually sit with and understand those emotions is the thing that I need in this season for my emotional health. What do I need for mental health? I got to make regular every single week conversation space with a therapist. I've got to find purpose and meaning in the work that I do. I need grace, right? Like I can go on and on. But And then in relationship health, I know for me, I need connection in this last year where man... It has been so hard to be connected because of the pandemic, fighting for ways to connect in a world that makes it more difficult has been so important. Leaning into family has been obviously super important for me relationally, and then boundaries. Boundaries are one of the most important pieces of self-care when it comes to both my relational health and my mental health. Mm -hmm. So um, self-care, like the the crazy thing is that I think a lot of people uh, can feel like it's selfish to prioritize yourself, that it feels sometimes like um, you have to first take care of other people before you could possibly want to indulge in taking care of yourself. And it's, I just fundamentally disagree with it. It's the reason on an airplane that you're supposed to put your mask on first before you help someone else. If you are not taking care of yourself, if you're not asking what do I need in this season, you disqualify yourself from being available to show up in the way that you'd hope or the way that the people that you love the most deserve to have you showing up for them in, in their lives as well.
0: Absolutely, I love that. I have two final quick questions for you. The first one, are there any books that have had a major impact on your life that you could recommend our audience?
1: The first book that uh, I reference in my book, uh, well, there's two. I'm gonna, so I'm gonna give you three books. So the, 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 the first two books that I read inside of my own personal development journey are books that I think every single human who is interested in growth ought to read. The first one is Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. It is just about understanding the, the habit loop and when we get triggered and how much of what we do in our lives is an unconscious thing. So that if you're interested in doing something that is different to produce a result that is different, it really starts with understanding how habits work and how we can control our responses to the triggers that are guaranteed to show up in our life. So Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg was my first and most important. Mindset by Carol Dweck. Uh, was the second and and super important for me. I'd been someone who was very fixed mindset oriented, deterministic in how I thought about some caps and limits on what was possible in my life. And adopting and having to fight against some of the current in my wiring to reach for growth mindset on an every single day basis is what changes the way that you think about feedback, the way you think about failure, the way you think about resilience, the, the things that are necessary To produce that answer to the question of how I feel about myself when I'm by myself every day, getting just a little bit better than I was yesterday requires that you adopt a growth mindset. So if you're not familiar with growth mindset, Mindset by Carol Dweck, an amazing book. In the last year, the most important book was Untethered Soul. Hmm. Uh, Untethered Soul is a book by Michael Singer that is... uh, all about this idea that I was just referring to in this conversation around health, which is I wanted to understand why I was thinking, what I was thinking, why I was feeling, what I was feeling. And the conceit of the book is that you are not your thoughts. You are not that soundtrack that is running incessantly in your head. You are the observer to those thoughts. Hmm. And if you can separate yourself from the thoughts themselves, now you get to understand because of dissecting them, which of these thoughts are real, which are not, which are helpful, which are not, which are motivated out of insecurity, fear, uh, scarcity, whatever it might be, and which of them are real. When I have that conversation around anxiety, right? Like I am someone who has felt anxious over my life and through some of the work I've done in therapy and a book like Untethered Soul, I've come to appreciate that, hey, if I can make a relationship with my anxiety and differentiate myself from being anxious to an observer of the anxiety, now I can have a conversation with the anxiety and ask, anxiety, what role do you believe yourself to be playing? Mm -hmm. One of the things I've found in the last year is that all of these feelings and many of these thoughts believe themselves to be playing a role that is there to help us, to protect us, to do something For us, even the negative thoughts, even the negative emotions. And so, in in the example of anxiety, when anxiety shows up for me, it's usually trying to draw my gaze, my focus to an area of my life that does not yet have a plan, or at least as detailed a plan as it might like. And in the ambiguity that exists in the absence of that plan, it's doing what it believes to be its role, waving its arms in the air, saying, hey, Could you address this? I bet if you did, you'd sleep better. I know I would, I'll go away. So now I can have that dialogue with my anxiety. It can have me looking now to this area of my life where there isn't a plan. I can make a plan, get a little more detailed in what needs to be detailed. And immediately that anxiety goes away. And now this relationship I have with anxiety bizarrely has become one of gratitude. Thank you for having availed yourself I appreciate you directing my attention to this thing, That now that I've put a plan against it, gives me even a greater chance at making progress toward this vision of who I'd hope to, to become. I'm gonna throw one more in there because there's please one do, more book that's just been amazing also. Uh, there's a book called Essentialism by Greg McCune. Yeah. And if you have not read Essentialism, I will argue that you ought to because it's this conversation around the difference between uh, the vital few and the, uh, the, and the many. And the, the idea that everything can't be important or nothing is important uh, is really at the kind of root of what this is. So if you're able to make a list of what is truly essential in your life, and ultimately then what is not essential, you give yourself the permission to focus on the essential, the needle movers, and actually make progress in big things and free yourself from feeling like you have to chase after the non-essential things that inevitably don't actually do much, but distract your focus or di- dilute the effectiveness of what you're up to. Uh, really a, a great read and I think something that if we could all apply a little bit of essentialism to our life would fundamentally change the output.
0: Love that, Greg McKeown, former guest and, and good friend of the show. So uh, yeah, awesome. I, I, uh, I, I second that recommendation. The, the last question I have for you today, this could be anything from a professional goal to family. For Dave Hollis right now, what makes a life worth living?
1: Well, I'm going to come back to part of what I started as an introduction point, And that is, I believe that every one of us has been very intentionally put on this planet for something great. That there was specific design and that the unique, intricate, weird, goofy, amazing details that exist inside of you were done so on purpose. And that the work that each of us has to do in this life with the limited amount of time that we have is to do everything we can to honor the intention of that creation, to leverage All of the things that we of all 7 billion people on this planet are the only person to have the wiring, the competencies, the passion, the experiences, all the things that we have, only we have. And those things being uniquely gifted to us come with a responsibility to gift to other people the things that exist inside of us. And so for every day of the rest of my life, It is not a thing that has a destination, but it is a perpetual journey until I'm dead. I'm going to try every day to get a step closer to honoring the intention of a creator who very deliberately designed in me the strengths, the the, the skills, the abilities, the light with an intention that I would share with other people and have impact on this world.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Dave, for everyone listening now who may want to find out more about yourself, maybe check out the book that we've mentioned a few times. Where can they find more of you?
1: Well, I hang out on social media quite a bit. So uh, Instagram is Mr. Dave Hollis. Facebook, Dave Hollis. Uh, Twitter, Dave Hollis. I don't go on Twitter as much. Uh, The book is called Get Out of Your Own Way, A Skeptic's Guide to Growth and Fulfillment. And uh, it's available wherever books are sold. I've got... uh, a podcast that uh, comes out every Thursday with a new episode called Rise Together. And uh, I do coaching. If you're interested in coaching on a really fantastic platform, it's like a masterclass kind of thing called Growth Day. You go to growthday.com forward slash Hollis. You can be coached by myself, Brendan Burchard, Mel Robbins, Jenna Kutcher, David Bach, a host of amazing coaches every single month. We all go live. There's recordings, a great community. Anyway, um, that's where I'm at. Perfect.
0: I'll make sure some of those links are, are linked in the show notes below. Dave, thanks so much. It's been a, a really fun conversation, one I've gained a lot of value out of personally, and I, I can't wait to share with the audience.
1: Right on, Lewis. Thanks so much. Have yourself a great night. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you so much once again for tuning in to the Freedom Pact podcast. I hope you'll join us again on Friday, where my co-host Joe will be bringing you another episode of the Freedom Pact podcast. Until then, please come and check us out on YouTube where all these episodes are uploaded in video format as well as clips of our highlights and best bits from all previous episodes. So please come on over to YouTube.com forward slash pact and check us out down there. I'll catch you guys over on the next episode of the Freedom Pact podcast. Thank you so much for listening.